Would you give a warm welcome to our lead pastor, Chris, as he continues us in our sermon series entitled, The Life We Long For. Good morning, Hope Astoria. I'm so glad that we can start our week off in worship, gathered around God's word. I want to welcome family, friends, guests that are joining us today. We're so glad you're here. If you would like more information about our church, in particular, our plans to regather in person and worship come this summer, we would love for you to contact us. But if you're visiting, uh, you're finding us in the middle of a sermon series that I truly believe is a powerful invitation from God for us to be transformed by Him. The title of the sermon series is The Life That We Long For. And it's based on this idea, this experience where there's a difference between the life that we're actually living versus the life that we all long for. That inwardly there's this tension. We know that we were created for more, even if we don't have that language. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we share that experience despite the fact that, you're, that we're following Jesus and you're not. We both agree fundamentally that there's this sense that we were made for more, that life is not being lived to its fullest. And in that tension, we come to the life of Jesus. Because it's as we study his life, as we go from believing to imitating how he lived, then we have access to actually begin to live the life that we long for. And so if you haven't been with us before, I encourage you to go to our website and hear our previous sermons because we have been journeying through some really powerful things. Today we're going to continue in a passage that we actually looked at last week as we were looking at the centrality of the Word of God, how Scripture was so core to Jesus' life. It was a deep, powerful, consistent pattern of Jesus to study it, to pray it, to integrate it, to discuss it, to teach it. Scripture was always on His lips. And if we're going to imitate the life of Jesus and live the life we long for, Scripture is a non-negotiable. But we're going to look at a passage where Jesus is actually being tempted in the wilderness, and in this moment, he responds with the Word of God. And we're going to take a look at this as we explore another aspect of what it looks like to imitate the life of Jesus as we seek to live the life we long for. Luke chapter 4, verse 1 and onward says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days and at the end of them was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Would you join me as we pray? 
Lord Jesus, we ask that you would speak to us this morning, cause your word to come alive to us. Holy Spirit, would you glorify Jesus, reveal him in a fresh and powerful way. And Father, we pray that we would grow in love and affection for you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I have a friend that is in human resources, and he is part of the hiring and the firing of quite a bit of people. He works for a very large corporation. And so he has been in interviews, uh, just too many to count. I remember he told me um, just a, a really powerful piece of wisdom. He said, when candidates come and seek a job with our firm, I pay attention to the candidates who are not just so eager to get employed, but actually come to the interview to interview us. And I was, I was caught off guard by that, but he began to expound and said, when candidates come and they're asking questions about um, how long have employees been here? Um, why did this role open up? In other words, why did someone quit or leave now that you have a vacancy? How long has your manager in this role been there? Um, really asking some probing questions because what those interviews knew and why it would impress my friend in HR is because he knew that they were coming to the interview not with a sense of desperation. They knew their worth, but in particular, they knew that it's important to understand the details, the fine details, to not enter into situations blindly, to ask important questions. And why, why I begin there is because I think when it comes to our faith and following Jesus, I think we have not asked some important questions. We've missed some fine print that today I hope when we look at is absolutely revolutionizing to you and me as we seek to imitate Jesus. Thus far in this series, we have been looking at characteristics, ways that Jesus has lived, rhythms, patterns, habits of his life, whether it was living an unhurried life, whether it was the centrality of prayer and scripture. And we've been looking at these things that are very admirable, things that we want to grow in, incorporate. We see them modeled in Jesus, and we want those things in our life. But today, I want to propose to you that Though Jesus' life was incredibly exemplary, and we should seek to not only believe in Jesus, but model our lives after him, there's actually some aspects of Jesus' life that if we're honest, we want nothing to do with. If we could just cherry pick the good things, the prayerfulness of Jesus, the miracles, his wisdom, his kindness to people, man, who wouldn't want all of those things? But there's some things in Jesus in his life that some of us want to avoid, I'll dare say all of us want to avoid with a 10-foot pole, because there were many tensions in the life of Jesus. He experienced some intense battles. When you read the Gospels, he would have such heated arguments when the religious leaders would come and try to trap him and try to ensnare him. If you read, some of those arguments led to these folks wanting to kill him. Now, I don't know about you, I've gone into many arguments with people. I can't think of any of them that escalated to the point where like, I'm about to die. This person's about to kill me over the disagreement. You know, I, there's a big debate over what's better, In-N-Out Burger or Shake Shack. And maybe right now you know your side, you know where you stand. Or some of you say, 
Forget those. Five guys. I've seen people debate for years which burger joint is better. What I've never seen is that debate result in a potential murder. Thank God. In Jesus' case, he would have arguments with these religious leaders. They would debate him, try to ensnare him. And at the end of it, they sought to kill him. I don't know about you. I want to be prayerful like Jesus. I want to be centered in the word. But I don't want part of my life to be this aspect where I get into arguments with people that could potentially lead to my demise. But that was part of Jesus' life. And when we seek to imitate his life, we can't cherry pick. We, we, when you pick up one end of the stick, the other one comes up with it. But not only that, Jesus was rejected and forsaken by his closest followers. We read in the Gospels that by the time we see him hung on the cross, they had all forsaken him. After him touching thousands of lives with his teachings and his miracles, and him walking very closely with 12 disciples, day in and day out for three and a half years, as well as there was a group of 70 leaders that were trained, that were part of this uh, this group of ministers that Jesus was training, at the end of it all, they all left. And even his closest, Peter, denied him publicly. I don't know about you, I want to imitate the life of Jesus, but I don't want that aspect. But we can't separate the good from the difficult in the life of Jesus. And today, we're going to look at an aspect of Jesus' life that I think we don't talk enough about. And I want to invite us to embrace this aspect of his life, even though it's a rough part of his life. But if we embrace it, I think it's going to truly empower us to live the life that we long for. In fact, I would say there is no way for us to live the life that we long for unless we embrace this aspect of Jesus' life that we're going to talk about today. And as we dive into it, I want to share a story about one of my favorite actors. It is Robert Downey Jr. He's been in some incredible films uh, as of late. So many of us uh, remember him in the Avengers saga. Um, and, and, but beyond that, the guy is just a phenomenal actor. But if you're familiar with his story, there was a time in his life that he wasn't known for his, just his phenomenal acting ability. He was known for his deep, intense struggle with addiction. You know, uh, he was famously quoted as saying that he had an allergic reaction to drugs. And this was the quote. He said, every time I use drugs and alcohol... I break out in handcuffs because he would go on these drug and drinking binges that would lead him inevitably to get arrested. And so he would get hired uh, for a movie and then he, was, he wouldn't show up. And that happened so many times that directors were done with him. And so now what happened between directors being done with him and now him being such a celebrated actor? Believe it or not, the person that actually was instrumental in helping him turn the corner was a name in Hollywood that is not too popular. Actually, his name brings up a lot of negative feelings. It was Mel Gibson. Robert Downey Jr. tells a story that uh, while he was receiving a, an award for some of his recent work after he came out of this battle with addiction, he gets up, and much to the surprise of the Hollywood elite that at that point had already closed the door to Mel Gibson because of things that he said, which were quite terrible, 
he gets up and he begins to thank Mel Gibson. And it was kind of a, a weird feeling in the room. But why he thanked him is because Mel Gibson had a pivotal conversation with Robert Downey Jr. He told him if he was going to overcome this dark season of his life, he used this phrase. He says, you're going to have to learn to hug the cactus. Now, think of that image. Think of a cactus that's big enough for you and I to hug. That's the last thing you and I want to do. Because just even the image, some of you are probably squirming right now. Like, ah, that's painful. I, I don't want to hug a cactus. I want to stay as far away as possible. But what Mel Gibson was trying to frame was this idea that Robert was not going to get better. He was not going to move forward unless he actually fully embraced and faced the rough, difficult, painful edges of his life. And why I share that story is because if you and I are going to live the life that we long for and truly imitate Jesus, a pivotal step is that we have to hug the cactus of temptation. We have to fully embrace the reality of temptation. We have to face it. We can't deny it. We can't sugarcoat it. We can't gloss over it. And we especially can't gloss over it in the life of Jesus. Now, I hope this is as riveting to you as it is to me. And I've been following Jesus since I was 14, and it still does not cease to amaze me when I think about in all of his miracles, all of his power, being fully human and fully God, yet Jesus was tempted. He was tempted just like you and I. And why that's startling is because Jesus lived the most flourishing human life that ever walked the earth. Yet that flourishing human life was marked by temptation. So I think it's important for us to pause this moment as we're seeking to live a life that we long for and we, we recognize the life I'm living now is not what inwardly my heart tells me I was created for more and, and we're reaching for a more robust, flourishing life and we reach for Jesus and we seek to imitate him because it's in imitating his life, his patterns, his rhythms, his, his priorities that we are actually enabled to live the life we long for and yet his life wasn't just filled with prayer. It wasn't just filled with scripture. It wasn't just an unhurried, centered life. It was a life that was filled with temptation, that he battled temptation. Let's be clear on that fine print. Let's be clear on what we're signing up for, that imitating the life of Jesus includes imitating his battles with temptation. That there is no way... For us to live the life we long for, imitating the life of Jesus, and escape the grid, the experience, the battle with temptation. Let's take a moment to understand actually what Jesus was being tempted with, his temptation, so that we might understand what it looks like for us to hug the cactus of temptation. See, we read in this text that Jesus is being tempted by Satan himself in the wilderness, See, and when we look at this passage, it's important to look at this passage in light of other biblical passages and other parts of the Bible. When we do so, some bells begin to go off because, one, we consider the location of the temptation and the types of temptation. 
person says that he was being tempted for 40 days in the wilderness. And the first temptation was around food. And that should jar up our memory, our biblical memory, to think of Israel and Adam and Eve. See, because Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. They were journeying in the wilderness after they were delivered from slavery in Egypt on their way to the promised land because of their disobedience. A journey that could have taken a couple weeks ended up taking 40 years. Man, that's not my sermon. That's not in my notes. But pause and consider that. That sin always causes things to go extra. Sin will keep us places longer than we ever thought. Sin will take us places that we thought we would never go, would lead us to do things that we thought were unimaginable. A 40-year journey when it should have been a couple weeks. And Jesus is there for 40 days. But then also, both Adam and Eve and the nation of Israel had this experience in that they both failed and succumbed to temptation. So Jesus is being tempted just like Adam and Eve were, just like the nation of Israel was, they failed and succumbed to temptation. But Jesus has a different experience. See, from the first pages of Scripture and throughout every page of the narrative of humanity, we, we encounter this hopelessness and this powerlessness with respect to temptation. We see that people continue to fail in the face of temptation. When temptation arises and presents itself, the story just keeps repeating. We keep giving in. That's scriptural history and that's in our everyday experience. Yet, this moment is different. I'm going to come back to the difference by the time we're done, but let's, let, let's, call, let's pause and consider two questions at this moment. What exactly was Jesus being tempted with? And when I ask that question, I'm not asking just on the surface. On the surface, we could read what he was being tempted with, but what's underneath? And the first thing that he's being tempted with is an independent life. See, it goes back to Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve were tempted in the garden. At the core of the temptation, the devil was coming to them and tempting them with the proposition that if they ate of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, that they would be like God. And they would be able to determine right and wrong independently from God. And I got news for us. The devil was not coming up with new temptations. There are old temptations repackaged in different ways, but at the core, the temptations continue to be the same. And the same way he tempted Adam and Eve to try to live a life independent from God, at this moment he's tempting Jesus with something similar. Because he's tempting Jesus to be able to fulfill his physical hunger apart from God's prescribed ways. He's tempting him to feed himself, to do a miracle, but to do so in a way that God was not leading him and directing him. I think that's important to, to kind of process because at the core, so much of our temptations are just that, that we're tempted to meet a legitimate need in our lives through illegitimate means. So Jesus was legitimately hungry. He'd been fasting for 40 days. And so this was not some like 
deep immoral reach that's being presented to Jesus. It's a very natural thing. You're hungry, you should eat. But he was being tempted to fulfill that appetite in a way that God had not prescribed. Can I tell you, that's our struggle on so many different levels and so many different expressions. We're all struggling with the temptation of having legitimate needs and trying to meet them, being presented with opportunities to meet them in illegitimate means. We all have needs for affirmation, for affection, for connection, for joy, for, for pleasure. But the question is, how are we being tempted to meet those needs? Because like Jesus, we're being presented in numerous ways that opportunities, invitations to meet those legitimate needs outside of God's prescribed will. Jesus was tempted to satisfy the, this need independently from God, but not only so, we see another temptation, and that is the temptation of stolen affection. Please hear me, stolen affection. First temptation is meet your needs independently from God. The next temptation is, will you let your heart be stolen by other things when it rightly belongs to God? See, the second temptation was this temptation to worship. And, and the temptation to worship was a, was a temptation to value, adore, and esteem something as greater than God. And so if you won't live a life that's independent from God we're often tempted to live a divided life. That's important to, to, to hear. Maybe you and I are not giving in to the temptation to live independently from God. And so we're seeking to tether our life to God. We don't want to meet these legitimate needs outside of God's ways. But if we're not careful and attentive, there could be this other temptation that grips us. And that is where we find ourselves having a divided heart where our heart's affections are stolen and gripped and held captive by so many other things other than rightly being placed in the hands of God. You know, I remember during the early days of social media, and actually it continues to happen, but during the early days it was quite a disturbing phenomenon that it was leading to high rates of infidelity. Because what was happening was, that people were reconnecting with old friends, old relationships. And in that process, some folks began to rekindle old flames. And while they were married now, having children and committed relationships, this old attachment began to stir something in them. And their hearts became divided. They weren't fully present in their present relationships, they were still, they were fantasizing and dreaming about what could have been, what was, making that the present reality. So often, temptation comes to us to seek to do that, to divide our affection, our allegiance, our devotion, and seek to ensnare us and tether us to something other than God. You know, Augustine talked about sin, and he talked about it, and we talk about this often because I think it's a very helpful way to understand sin. He talked about sin as a state in our hearts of having disordered love. 
And what he meant by that was that sin expresses itself not just in particular behaviors that we name, whether it's lying or murder or theft, but actually one of the main ways sin expresses itself in your life and mine is by causing us to love things in the wrong order. It causes us to love things first that should really be loved last. It causes us to love things with great intensity that should not be loved with that kind of intensity. Or it causes us to love something with less potency when it deserves our full, unreserved affection. And Jesus, after being tempted with this temptation of having an independent life, the devil comes with this temptation of worship, seeking to divide his affection, to distort his love. How many can relate? Perhaps you're going through that right now on various levels where if, if you search your heart, you realize, as, as the prophet Isaiah said, potentially you can find yourself where though your lips have the praise of God on them, our hearts can be far from him. What I've learned and continue to learn is that Jesus will never settle for divided affection from us. Jesus will never settle for our relationship with him to be marked by this divided soul where our hearts somewhat belong to him, but they belong, the rest of it belongs to the world or to different values or pleasure seeking. No, Jesus says your heart, your affection rightly belongs to me. I love the words of Abraham Kuyper where he described this, the, the lordship of Jesus and he said, there's not one square inch in all of creation that Jesus does not say, mine. I know if you're not a follower of Jesus, that can feel quite intense to hear, man, this, this Jesus requires a lot. He's, he's just uncompromising in the level of devotion and, and affection that he calls for. But consider this, why should he settle for anything other than that? A God who loves us, who redeemed us, who died in our place, who rose from the dead. If he doesn't deserve all of us, then nothing does. He rightly deserves our full affection. And in the midst of temptation, God is calling us, don't let your affection become divided. Don't stray. Bring your whole soul to me. But the temptation didn't stop there. The next temptation that Jesus experienced was, the perversion of truth. Truth perverted. We see that the enemy at this moment begins to twist and pervert scripture in order to tempt Jesus. See, what he tells him is that if he flings himself off of the top of the temple, he quotes a passage from scripture that God will charge his angels and that Jesus won't be hurt. And so, on the one hand, it's true. God promises our protection. He promises that he watches over us, that he's, he's caring for us, and that he's, he's with us. That's true. But the way he quoted it and presented it to Jesus was a very twisted way because he was trying to get Jesus to apply that truth in a way that would actually tempt God. That would almost try to the audacity of putting God in the place of saying, hey, this is what you said, so I'm going to do this, and you better do what you... It, it, there's this audacity that comes when we're tempted to tempt God, and Satan is doing that to Jesus. 
But how he's doing that is he's perverting truth. See, Satan's goal is never just an isolated, solitary act of disobedience. It's important for us to realize his schemes and what he's after. He's not just after you and I lying once on our taxes or or cheating someone of time, stealing once or or gossiping once. No, he's after something deeper. His goal is to propose a distorted view of God by twisting his word to our minds. And we see that in the very beginning of Genesis where he begins to insert doubt and try to to cast a shadow on God's good intentions when he asked Adam and Eve, did God really say that? And can I tell you, in our modern times, there is so many forms of that demonic question that comes up all the time. Did God really say that? I've heard forms of that question when it comes to the Christian sexual ethic. Did God really say that? When it comes to living a life of radical generosity, uh, the, the question comes up in different ways. Did God really say we have to live that way? When it comes to questions of racism and, and seeing the image of God and others, some, sometimes the questions come up in all these different sophisticated ways. Did God really say we're supposed to love each other that way? Did God really say? There, there is an ongoing present day attempt to pervert the truth. And if you and I are going to imitate Jesus, we can't allow for the truth to be perverted. When we see the truth of God's word in God's word, we have to be ever so mindful of modern attempts to put a lens over our eyes that seek to twist and and, and reinterpret the scriptures through modern values rather than recognizing that God is wise enough. If he meant what we're saying he means now, he would have made that known from the beginning and throughout all these ages. But now there's a degree of arrogance that's in the air as if we are somehow more sophisticated and smarter than the ages of Christians that have faithfully served God and interpreted the scripture in these historic rooted ways. The enemy tries to pervert God's truth in order to tempt us away from what God is calling us to do and to live. But in all these temptations, how did Jesus respond? And for us in this series, what does imitating Jesus look like in this area? This is how he responded. He resisted temptation by being armed with the word of God. Jesus was able to counteract every temptation with God's truth. Every verse that Jesus quotes in this passage is coming from the book of Deuteronomy. And so he basically just copied and reiterated and restated when temptations came. He declared what he, what he read, what he studied, what he memorized from the book of Deuteronomy. There's no other strategy for us to seek to employ. If it was good enough for Jesus when faced with temptation to be armed with the word of God and to respond to this, those temptations with specific verses from scripture that counteracted those lies, it does not change for us. I want to encourage you this week to open your Bible and begin to do a study of God's word that gives you truth 
to counteract your specific temptations. Now, even though we all share the common experience of temptation, we experience temptation in different ways. Some of us are tempted in very specific things that others are not. Some, some can be very tempted toward angry outbursts, while others are not. Some can be tempted toward not speaking up and kind of you know, you know, regressing in social settings when we should, while others of us are tempted to speak up too much, and maybe we need to learn how to humble ourselves. Temptation looks differently for all of us, but we all experience it. But what I want to invite you to do, pinpoint your specific temptation and find truth from God's word that speaks to it. If you're being tempted to be unforgiving, find truth from God's word that brings your heart to a place of forgiveness, that confronts your heart with the truths of grace and mercy. If you're being tempted toward fear, with fear, Find truth from God's word that speak to those things, that give you courage, that give you peace, that remind you that God is with us. This is a spiritual battle that you and I are facing every day, and sometimes it can go unnoticed because it's happening beyond the, the naked eye. We don't see it visibly, but we know it's happening because Throughout our days, we feel the pull, the lies, the moods, the, the feelings that come, the thoughts that seek to cause us to drift from God's way. And where, however it's coming to you, however temptation is knocking on your door, when you answer that door, you and I need truth from God's word. I remember when I first became a Christian, I was 14 years old. And I give my life to Christ at the height of my hormonal development. And I'm taught from God's word at that time that sex outside of a covenant of marriage between a man and a woman is not God's plan. And it was terrifying when I found that out. Because all around me I saw people that were not living like that. Actually, the first time I met a married couple was when I walked into church at the age of 14. Everybody I knew around me, they lived with each other for decades. Nobody was married. And beyond whether they were married or not, it was just in the air, in the culture at that time. We lived to please our bodies in whichever way that we wanted. And now all of a sudden, there's this Christian sexual ethic. Man, it was such a startling revelation. And now I found myself in the midst of intense temptation where Jesus is calling me to live with a sense of worship that my body belongs to him. And yet my culture and everything around me was telling me otherwise. I can't tell you the times where thoughts would bombard my mind, desires, fantasies, uh, where girls would try to, uh, solicit me uh, and try to get me to pay attention. I, I mean, I'd be in my cafeteria in high school. I'd be reading my Bible, trying to mind my business, and, and girls would try to just get my attention. And it was tempting. That happened even during the early days of college. The only way that I was able to navigate those difficult seasons was to arm myself deeply with the Word of God. I would memorize every passage of scripture that spoke about the Christian sexual ethic, about holiness, about discipline. 
And when those thoughts would come, when temptations would come to try to allure me to see women, not as women, but as, as, as objects, as dehumanizing them, I would quote God's word and get me to a place where I would then begin to see them as sisters, as people to be respected and not to be used. What was happening during that time was the scriptures say our minds begin to be renewed. And it was as if my mind was being scrubbed from all this like ingrained dirt that was, that was tempting me to live as I used to while Jesus was giving me new life and calling me to live differently. That was my journey. And that continues to be an ongoing thing in other areas of my life now. There's, there's always these weeds that try to grow in our souls. And the only way that we can counteract those weeds and pull them out is through scripture. Can I tell you, you won't have to quote the word of God just once to forgive. It'll happen again and again and again. You won't just have to quote the word of God when you're tempted toward fear once. It'll happen again and again and again. The weeds come up and we have to pull them out with the word. So again, identify that temptation. Find truth from God's word and be ready for when temptation comes to be like Jesus and push against it. But here's where I want to land. And I said all of that to say this, so I want you to pay attention. What's so liberating about hugging the cactus of temptation and embracing the fact that Jesus was tempted just like you and I is that it removes shame from temptation. You don't have to be ashamed that you're tempted. You don't have to beat yourself up and, and think that you're gross and that you're less than and what's wrong with me because you're tempted. Because Jesus was tempted. He was tempted and he did not sin. We're tempted and we do sin and because we sin, we can heap up a lot of shame on ourselves. But I want to isolate this truth. If we sin, we should repent. We should confess. We should apply God's love, receive his grace, not make excuses for it, own it, turn from it. But when we're tempted, free yourself from the tendency to shame ourselves, to guilt, because when you're tempted, you are in the greatest company ever because Jesus was tempted. This is the lowest hanging fruit in this series in that if you want to imitate the life of Jesus and live the life that we long for, you actually don't have to grow a new discipline or add a new pattern. Right now, in the temptations you face is the opportunity for you to be like Jesus because when you hug the cactus of that temptation, don't deny it, but actually learn to meet God in the place of temptation. You and I become more like Jesus. Hebrews 4, 14 and onward says that Jesus empathizes with our temptation because he was tempted in every way, just like you and I, yet without sin. And in this passage, we see Jesus, and this gives us great hope. We see Jesus resisting temptation, not just because he was the son of God, but remember, he was fully human and the way he resisted temptation is the way you and I get to resist temptation now. He resisted temptation as a fully human being that 
leaned on the life of the Spirit of God. That's how you and I resist temptation. We don't deny our humanity, but we embrace the new life that we have in Christ that gives us power to overcome. And as we embrace, as we hug the cactus of temptation, don't deny it, and seek to learn, as Jesus lived, how to push back against temptation, armed with the Word of God, I'm believing that the sting of shame that often comes with temptation begin, will begin to, to just drift away. Do you know that God fully loves you, even though you and I are tempted by things that don't honor Him? Even though we can feel badly about that, God loves us. His love doesn't change. And throughout our journey, we will always be tempted. Jesus was tempted. There's no escaping living the life that we long for. Imitating his life is impossible without temptation being at the core of our life. We're going to face it. We're going to deal with it. But this is an invitation to deal with temptation, to face it in a way that's freed from shame. God loves you despite your temptations. Whatever that is, he loves you. And he wants to meet you and I in the place of our temptation. Because imitating the life of Jesus doesn't save us from temptation, but it will empower us to walk away from temptation as we embrace the word of God. With that, can I invite us to pray? Lord Jesus, I ask that you would meet us this week and the days ahead as we face temptations, as we identify and name the temptations, the specific custom-made, tailor-made ways the temptation knocks on the door of our hearts. May we name that, face it, hug the cactus of it, don't deny it, but may we face it armed with truth that resists the lies that come our way. Help us to imitate you, Jesus, and to embrace the fact that temptation will be part of our journey. And because of, because of it being in your life, Lord, we can embrace that fact without shame, without condemnation. In Jesus' name, amen.